0: Coming up on the podcast today, the new Vancouver plan is a comprehensive look at density in the city. Where are hubs going to be developed? Where should they be developed? Frances Bula from the Globe and Mail has her take on it. And there's been another collision between a cyclist and a very large truck. The footage of the incident is just devastating. Why does this keep happening and how can it be prevented? Corey Berger from Capital Bikes weighs in on that. And a stamp collector matched his hobby with a good cause, and now Canada Post has a new charity stamp for sale to benefit Ukraine. But first, just how did a major telecommunications outage put the country on its knees? That's all coming up on this podcast. The widespread Rogers outage on Friday caused panic for 911 services and major trouble for retailers and transit operators. Could this be a sign that a monopoly of telecommunication companies might not be the best for our country and for customers? Do we need more competition by service providers? Joining us is Vass Bednar, the executive director of McMaster's University's uh, Program of Public Policy. Good morning, Vass. Good morning. How are you? Great. Okay, let's talk about this massive outage that happened for Rogers and all of its customers. Friday left a lot of people feeling, quite frankly, powerless, didn't it?
1: I think powerless is a good word. Also, just the uncertainty, right? It took us so long to really get a sense of why this was happening. And I think people were really shocked not with the fact that there was an outage. I mean, to a certain extent, outages are, are going to be a reality of any complex system. But the the scale and duration of this outage definitely set it apart from anything else Canada's ever experienced.
0: Yeah, and a lot of customers were going, is this even allowed to happen? And could this happen again? Where did this leave customers?
1: Well, you know, in terms of customers that were were with directly with Rogers, we might see we see people getting some modest compensation offered to them on their bill. Um, some people might be switching away, but I really think the event, and I've actually been using the term emergency, right, in terms of how some people were disconnected and the services we lost. The event it's it's about more than just Rogers. So first of all, it probably could have happened to any of the large uh, telecommunications providers in Canada. I actually feel kind of badly for the company that they become a bit of a punching bag in this regard. If we zoom out, it's really an opportunity to reflect on the structures and systems that we have and whether they're really able to serve the public interest properly. And I think that's what consumers, customers, Canadians are really caring about now. You see that passion coming through, at least in the online chatter that I'm consuming.
0: Yeah, a lot of Canadians aren't aware of the fact that we pay notoriously high rates for mobile phone services when you look at us compared to other places around the world. Ours is one of the highest. And as power has come to be held by fewer and fewer companies in communications here, it seems competition is narrow and consumers are losing choice in the matter. How many, I mean, we can't, I'm sure we can't nail a number, but uh, how many customers do you think would would consider switching providers over this, percentage-wise?
1: Honestly, I would say who cares about people switching providers because it doesn't solve that problem that you just pointed to, which is choice, right? And we have policymakers actively trying to improve the terms of competition in our telecommunication system. This is a system that evolved over time that ends up being kind of very, I'll say Frankensteinian, not the <laughs> official policy term. Um, but just this May, uh, I said, the Minister of Innovation, Science and Economic Development, they have a new proposed policy direction. And that's to the CRTC, which also regulates telecommunications, of course, alongside the Competition Act, to put in place new rules to improve competition, leading to lower prices and better Services so really the goal here lower prices better services for Canadians and I don't think we're going to get that just because of that outage though temporarily we may see competitors offering you know initial discounts to people to court them over to reduce the uh, pain or the switching cost of getting away from Rogers but again it doesn't solve that bigger problem that competition that lack of competitive intensity
0: in Canada. Yeah. If you surveyed uh, social media forums on Friday, they were not very kind to Rogers across the board. Uh, People did have sympathy though, for people working at Rogers customer service for sure. I saw a lot of that, but um, you know, I think people also began to wake up to this idea of privatization and of government regulation and thinking about how it applies to other parts of our lives. Do you think, that what happened on Friday is enough for people to take any kind of uh, action in terms of pushing government leaders to do more?
1: I think it is. I I think it's very much a tipping point. I think the lack of competition in Canada is kind of reaching a crescendo, uh, you know, uh, accelerated by this inflationary period where people are more price sensitive than ever. We're really looking at Why do things cost the way they do? Why are certain prices going up? What's the difference between what's profit and what's inflation? And our our lack of competition or our oligopolist nature for telecommunications has long been a feature of Canada. You sometimes hear the joke, I don't even know why I'm repeating it. It's not that funny, but that Canada's three telecommunications companies in a trench coat, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) But I think people are from this, you know, craving more and better competition. I also think as Canadians, as a source of pride, what happened on Friday is kind of embarrassing for the country, right? You know, in terms of how how this paralyzed us and how kind of fragile or the lack of resiliency in that system. So I am hopeful. I am optimistic. And the challenge with telecom, of course, is it's a really uh, complex space when you get into the nitty-gritty and into the weeds, but I think for the average person, and I'll put myself in that category for sure, you don't need to be deep in those weeds to be somebody that can help reshape, reimagine, have better or bigger ideas for this space. And there's a lot of ideas that have sort of been policy ideas that have been on a shelf for quite some time that we might see kind of uh, renewed with new energy. That's exciting too.
0: Okay, Vass, and you did mention modest compensation. Uh, what about broader accountability for the outage? We heard a, a brief Rogers apology, but should their profit margins take more than just a tiny pinch?
1: Well, I'm glad you're bringing up profit margins. I mean, these are private companies that are all of them, right? Rogers, Bell, Telus, others, their, their primary responsibility is to return value to shareholders, Right. So we know that these firms collected together. So, again, just to make this less about Rogers, more about the sector, they collected more than two hundred and forty million dollars from Canada's wage subsidy program in the pandemic. And then Bell and Telus, just to point to some other companies here, raised shareholder payouts. Right. They didn't raise wages for people. They didn't lower rates for people. Not that, you know, the two hundred forty million would have gone that far. What we're really, I think, talking about here is that fundamental disconnect. The role of the Internet and cellular services in our lives has changed. It's become embedded in the fabric of our everyday lives. You need it if you want to participate in society. It is not a nice-to-have. It is a need-to-have now. So why is it only provided by private actors? Can they really put our best interests forward? Long way of saying you're starting to see more people remind us of, of some public options or maybe there's a stronger role for the state here.
0: Yeah, Vass. earlier you did mention that it was embarrassing, and quite frankly, it was. It was embarrassing Mm -hmm. that the entire country could be brought to its knees for a day, basically, in terms of all of our communication and commerce. uh, People were stuck not being able to make phone calls, but they also couldn't buy things, and businesses lost tons of money. So you're right to call it embarrassing. Do we know if this has happened to this extent in other major countries?
1: I know a couple of people have brought up that either a couple of years ago or last year, there was a Rogers outage, but not on the scale of, of this sort. I'm not aware of a comparable uh, telecommunications blackout. Doesn't mean it, it hasn't existed. And I love the question. I'll try to take a look. Um, but it did, Friday really made me think of, uh, I'm sorry, this is a very uh, Western reference, but the, the 2003 blackout, North, North uh, East blackout.
2: Mm. Um,
1: and people have sort of fond memories of that, like eating ice cream before it melted, chatting with your neighbors because it was dark inside. Huge differences now between 2003, though. That
0: was yes. five years
1: before the App Store started. Yeah. You know, it was a big deal if you had a cell phone, if at all, and camera phones were kind of new. Again, it's a different economy, a different world, and I think that prompts us rethinking, again, how these systems fit into that. I mean, maybe, maybe the, the source of pride will be this was like the largest and longest outage, Um, And we can try to make it a positive, not a negative. I'm being a (laughs) bit
0: of a joke. Stretching a little bit there, (laughs) Bast. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time this morning and for for your perspective.
1: Thanks for having me. Talk later. Bye.
0: Well, my next guest is Frances Bula, Urban Affairs contributor for the Globe and Mail. And in a recent article, she wrote The last time Vancouver tried to tackle its housing problems with a comprehensive plan almost 30 years ago, Nothing much changed in the vast swaths of land dedicated to detached homes on large grassy lots. Good morning, Francis. Good morning. And now we're looking at something different, aren't we? What does the new plan suggest?
2: So, uh, sort of, and this is... Uh, Just to emphasize, it's not like the Broadway plan that we all just went through where it was sort of a block by block. Here's how tall everything is on your block. This is a more general plan. More comprehensive. What it envisions envisions is... um, uh, you know, a, a big municipal town center at Oakridge. So you know, whatever's being built on the actual Oakridge Mall site will be surrounded by many other uh, blocks of buildings um, that are taller. That's going to create kind of a very dense hub there. And then in various neighborhoods with commercial streets, and I'm sure we can all think of them. Like my favorite is around 49th and Fraser. Oh yeah, Trudacana. Yay. Um, <laughs> Uh, but you know, there's many others, and having sort of clusters of mid-rise buildings around them, a bit like Carisdale. You know, Carisdale's an old tram suburb, uh, or you know, it was on a tram line, and so it developed a bit of density that you don't necessarily see in Dunbar, or yeah. you know, out on West 10th, or uh, you know, some of the shopping areas, say Victoria, Victoria and 33rd to 41st. So, so clusters of mid-rise around there. Uh More density around, uh, a bit more, you know, probably mid-rise around um, big transit routes. Uh, and then um, in what would normally have been called single-family zoning, they ca- they're calling it multiplex. So you can do everything up to like six units on a lot and maybe even a small apartment building, which, you know, given the size of some single family houses these days, a small apartment building wouldn't be that much bigger. So so that's the sort of overall concept.
0: Okay. You know, right away, I start thinking about who would oppose this. <laughs> now, you mentioned clusters of mid-rise, which don't seem to, to threaten people as much as high-rises do. Um, but also those hubs around transit routes. How, how do you think popularity of this plan will go?
2: You know, it's hard to say because there's some very vocal people who seem to be opposed to, you know, a lot of things the city is doing these days Vancouver and more choices. Like one of the things the Vancouver plan identifies, for example, is that an area like Dunbar has, I'll let you guess what percentage of purpose built rental housing. yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. so you know there's some basement suites there and some some houses that are rented out so you know we have uh, choices of housing are very um, uh, they're not evenly spread out across the city but you know i think with the vancouver plan there's some opposition to it now but because it's so general it's not as acute as with the broadway plan but i think as it gets down to implementation if the implementation is done Uh, You know, where you can really connect with neighborhoods. I think it could go better than some people think. But uh, if it's done insensitively, then you're going to get more opposition for sure.
0: Yeah, you did write that the Vancouver plan has some people worried that it's going to be too top down.
2: Yeah, and that's a criticism that we hear a lot today from people who are opposing either the Broadway plan or individual projects. Um, they you know, they say that they've had no chance for real community engagement, um, that it is top down. Um, I have to say there's, you know, it's hard for me to assess that um, because there is sort of an antagonism that's developed right now, because there's so many plans, so many projects going on in Vancouver. There's Sanoc, the the Squamish development near the Burrard Bridge, the Jericho lands, the Heather lands, the development um, by a a, a real estate um, trust at um, the uh, Safeway site at Commercial and Broadway. So, you know, it's just like people have a burr under their saddle. Uh, these days because there's so much going on.
0: Yeah. One thing that I wonder about with the Vancouver plan is what about small businesses? When I talk about small businesses, I mean, tiny businesses. I have friends that will visit from elsewhere, from other cities, uh, other North American cities. And they always ask me, where's your boat? Like, where's your local? Like what's the bodega here? Or, you know, where's the little mom corner shop or tiny restaurant in, in a yeah. residential neighborhood. And I say, ah, we don't really have those anymore. <laughs>
2: Um, that does exist in some areas. Like I'd say again, 49th and Fraser is a great area for that. Um, there are some, um, one of, you know, ironically, it's the last city plan that has made it really hard for local businesses because the last city plan, um, they, really tried to avoid bothering the residents, Uh uh, you know, in the single family areas. So one of the options was to pile density onto the commercial streets. So you know, what we see very commonly now is a new building that's like three or four stories of apartments over retail, particularly along 4th and some parts of Broadway and Victoria, I think. That is a result of the last plant from 30 years ago. Oh, so interesting. Yeah, because that was an easy place to go. No one objected to it too much. But the problem is it puts a lot of pressure on those streets because then that means they're constantly being redeveloped in those small local stores um, that can do well when they're renting for very little money in some decrepit, you know, one story, place that's falling down, um, the rent becomes much higher when that building, you know, when that lot gets redeveloped. So I know that they do want to protect local businesses and your question is really good. Um, one of the one of the things they said is if we can take some pressure off of those commercial streets, um, that will help. And in certain areas like the West End on Davie Street, yeah. for example. Um, there was no development, you know, big development allowed on the commercial street to kind of protect those, um, those sh- little shops along Davy.
0: Interesting. And,
2: um, in the Broadway plan as well, they said not a lot of density going to be allowed in the, vil- what they called the villages. So like Main Street, Camby and Granville that have, you know, those nice little commercial strips where it's usually only it's between one and four stories. So fascinating,
0: Francis. I really could talk to you about this stuff for a long time. I know. And
2: obviously, I could too. So I I have to learn (laughs) to shut up with my friends. So we'll we'll do it again sometime.
0: Thanks again for your time this morning. Thank you. Well, you may remember that last week we talked about a fatal collision at the intersection of Hornby and Pacific in downtown Vancouver. Unfortunately, a UBC student died after he collided with a truck while he was cycling. Now, a similar incident happened in Victoria. Corey Berger is the president and spokesperson for Capital Bikes. Welcome to the show, Corey.
3: Good morning. How are you this morning?
0: Good, and thank you for giving us some of your time on a Sunday morning. Corey, what's your understanding of what happened in this latest collision?
3: Well, uh, it's a fairly classic case of a truck driver turning right uh, across uh, a bike lane. Uh, in this case, a very similar kind of location, uh, hit, in our case, the Johnson Street Bridge. Um, and uh, also in our case, the, the truck driver uh, looks like they ran the red light where they're not allowed to turn right on a red
0: yeah. So I watched the video and it shows the cyclist in the correct marked bike path. It shows even a sign that says no ride on red except for cyclists." And then you see the truck make that turn and it's horrific, but you see the cyclist, cyclist hit the truck and their body kind of go underneath it. It's a shocking video. And for a second, Corey, I wondered, maybe we all need to see this so that we can wake up as to what can happen.
3: Yeah, I mean, trucks turning right are uh, pretty large dangers for people both biking and walking. I don't know if you noticed that video. There's a person who's walking right beside it who darts out of the way as well. Right. Um, and, you know, for in Victoria at least, the last two people who have unfortunately died while riding their bikes, both of whom have been right hooked by trucks at, uh, at, at two different intersections.
0: What else could be done? at those intersections where you've already got a marked path, you have a cyclist following the rules, what else could be done to protect the cyclist?
3: Well, I mean, the big thing right now is, you know, as you mentioned, the infrastructure is really good there. And, uh, you know, in fact, there's actually been a drop in crashes at that intersection uh, since all the new infrastructure was put in place. Um, So the big thing for us is, is about changing what the trucks look like, you know. People are going to make mistakes. They're going to run reds, those kinds of things. Uh, but we, we know from other places in the U.K. and London they are working on this is that when you change the way trucks are, you put side guards on, you create better visibility, you know, these incidents turn from fatal incidents like they unfortunately were here in Vancouver to usually, uh, you know, minor injuries, which is really what we're looking to, you know, that's sort of the best you can hope for in those kinds of collisions.
0: Yeah, in the global BC News story about this in particular, uh, there was someone from the Truckers Association saying that trucks have really big blind spots, but that the drivers are trained to compensate for them and be extra cautious. With all of that in mind, what else could be done?
3: Well, I mean trucks have big blind spots, but you know, yeah, you know, I mentioned in London UK they're creating a new style of truck which has ret- removes or reduces those blind spots with crossover mirrors, with cameras, with cabs that are changed so that truck drivers can see down, you know, those kinds of things. And then the easier thing to do uh, in the shorter term, because obviously replacing the truck fleet takes some time, is truck side guards. Uh, You know, they're fairly cheap, $1,000, $2,000 per truck, and they get installed between the front and rear wheels. And they, you know, they prevent that kind of collision where the person gets hit and then ends up underneath the rear wheels. And there's some precedent here, actually, too. You know, if you go next time you're out there, take a look at the back of a semi-trailer. What you'll see are what they call underride bars that have been installed in the backs of almost all semi-trailers across North America. And those are prevent people from driving underneath semi-trailers because there were a lot of fatal collisions with rear ends that way. So they've already done this once. It's pretty easy to do, basically take a second cut and say, hey, let's make sure we keep it safe for people biking and walking and add those uh, side guards.
0: Well, I imagine for the truck drivers, it would offer them a little bit of peace of mind too, no? No.
3: Absolutely. I mean, for the truck drivers, you know, they're out there doing deliveries, trucks aren't going to disappear anytime soon. We've got increasingly large amounts of construction both in Victoria and Vancouver and across the world, really. Um, So, you know, a better truck is going to make it easier for them to travel around our urban areas.
0: So what are we missing here about these sidebars? Why aren't they in place now? Why aren't they mandatory if they could help so much?
3: That's an interesting question. I mean, the fundamental challenge is that Transport Canada regulates uh, how vehicles uh, look. Uh, all vehicles, not just trucks. Um, and, you know, a few years ago, uh, but almost a decade ago now, there was a push in Ontario. There were a number of people who were unfortunately killed. Uh, and at the time, Transport Canada decided not to mandate them. We're hopeful now that they can take a second look and, you know, might be 10 years late, but, uh, you know, go ahead and make that change.
0: So you mentioned the cost being about one or $2,000 uh, to put in those sidebars on those huge trucks. They could potentially save lives. Is it a cost issue, do you think? Or do you think that regulation, government needs to step in, subsidize, mandate it because people don't care enough about the safety?
3: Well, I think, I mean, it's like I mentioned the underride bars. The underride bars are, you know, a couple hundred to a couple thousand dollars as well. And the government stepped in and regulated and said, you know what, not only are you going to install them, here's the standards to which you're going to install them to. Uh, You know, they need to basically take a certain amount of force. So, you know, the government's been down this road before with regulating trucks to keep them safer for smaller vehicles. So, you know, to my mind, at least it's fairly easy to do this again with side guards.
0: And Corey, what about the cyclists themselves? When a cyclist is out there, well, I'll, I'll tell you that for 10 years, all I did was cycle. I didn't drive mm-hmm. at all for strict 10 years. I was always on my bike downtown going fast. But I rode to such a degree of defensiveness that I assumed nobody can see me. I never took other vehicles seeing me for granted. I always assumed they could not see me. And there have been, there were so many, so many close calls. Uh, but because I assumed they just, they can't see me unless I lock eyes with them. Um, what do you think cyclists could still be vigilant about?
3: You know, I mean, it's about as being vigilant as you can. I mean, if you watch that video, the truck is not actually the first vehicle to run the red light. There's actually a car in front of them. And if you watch, the the bike rider was actually watching that car, same with the person on the, and actually you can see them look at the car and go, okay, I need to wait for them to pass. So, you know... Also, it's about, you know, truck drivers, if you're driving in a downtown area, it's busy, it's congested, you need to be slow and (laughs) don't run red lights is a a really easy message to take.
0: Sometimes with running that red light, you do see that drivers do it uh, by mistake because it's (laughs) not at every intersection. And some drivers will even do it and and get honked at, uh, cars as well, and um, then realize and you'll see a look of an expression of sorrow on their face. Sorry, whoops, I made a mistake. So is there something that we could do around that signage to make it more clear?
3: Well, I mean, there's actually three signs at this intersection that say no right on red, and it's been in place okay. for just over two years. I mean, right on red restrictions have been in downtown Victoria for over five since we installed the Pandora Protected by clean. Right. And I mean, I should mention, this is actually my route to work, so I ride through here pretty much every day as uh, well. Okay. Uh, um, and so, you know, I think that again comes back to the, the philosophy we're looking at with, with safety, which is when people make mistakes, fatal injury shouldn't be the consequence. And that's really where the vehicle design comes in and the infrastructure as well.
0: Corey, thank you for being with us today.
3: Well, thanks very much.
0: You may remember that back in March, we had the owner of All Nations Stamp and Coin on our show. The owner, Brian Grant Duff, started a petition calling for Canada Post to issue a special stamp for Ukrainian refugee relief. Now, Canada Post has issued a stamp that will benefit Ukraine. It did take a few months uh, since the announcement, but it's available for sale now. And the story has advanced even further because now apparently the U.S. is considering a similar charity stamp as well. Let's welcome Brian to the show now. Good morning, Brian.
4: Good morning, Rajeev.
0: All right, Brian. Well, the the stamp is for sale now, so you did it.
4: I sure did, and uh, it feels a bit strange. And I, I didn't, I wasn't fully confident about it until I actually managed to get a booklet of the stamps in my hand, and uh, they are proving a little bit difficult to get. Uh, uh, I think I think when Canada Post said uh, select post offices, they meant it. So uh, it, it's a little bit like uh, a treasure hunt. You've got to you know be lucky and try a few places and. Uh, but, but I urge people to do that. Just uh, go to the local postal outlet and keep asking for the Ukraine uh, stamps and you'll get them.
0: Sure. And do you have any idea if they're trying to produce more?
4: Well, that, that's sort of my secret hope, I guess. Uh, if they sell quickly, they, you know, there's a provision to make more. Uh, I have been in contact with Canada Post and they're thinking about it. But uh, in a way, the timing of it works out well because we're starting to get a little bit burnt out on uh, Ukraine news. And uh, I'm not, but we are as a, as a group, right? It's not in the news as much as it was and so on. So this is a timely reminder. And uh, if, if they were to reprint the stamp, that would probably also be a timely reminder. And, of course, the uh, exciting development is that uh, the person who got the breast cancer awareness stamp going in the U.S., who, like me, changed the the stamp issuing policy, modernized it, uh, got the U.S. making semi-postals for charities. This was for breast cancer awareness, is now looking to get the U- U.S. to do a Ukraine relief semi-postal stamp. And if anyone can do it, they can. Again, that U.S. breast cancer uh, semi-postal sold over a billion stamps and raised over $94.5 American dollars for breast cancer in the U.S. That's
0: astounding. And I understand that part of your initial inspiration was seeing how that breast cancer stamp took off in the U.S., right?
4: Well, one thing you do when you're following your heart is you explore... How things might go, and and you study who, how to do things, and where to do things, and why to do things, and and of course you look for justifications, I guess, to bolster your arguments, and and so I I actually didn't know about the breast cancer awareness stamp uh, because it was relatively modern, and and uh, my interest is predominantly in older material, um, so it was a revelation to me, but certainly it uh, it helped me bolster my argument, and it's an incredible story, and not unlike. Canada, getting a stamp made is not a simple process. And so, uh, you know, you've got to really try and build up as much momentum as you can and, and uh, change the direction of the ship if you can. And, and I'm kind of in the gratitude phase with Canada Post where I'm just so thankful that they managed to get this done. I don't think any, anyone realizes how hard it is for them to you know, fit something into their already full schedules. And so they really are doing the best they can, and, and they did an incredible job of uh, making a good-looking stamp and, uh, and doing it quickly. It normally takes two years to get a stamp from conception to uh, post office outlets, and, and they did it in four months. So uh, that also shows that if they could reprint some, they could probably do it fairly quickly.
0: Yeah, the Canada Post website says that funds raised through the purchase of the new Ukraine stamp will be distributed through the Canada Ukraine Foundation, CUF. You can buy them online. The stamp itself, Brian, it's it's pretty. It's uh, bright and colourful. It features a sunflower, which was chosen because of the national flower of Ukraine. It's also recognised as a symbol of peace and unity. And that bright yellow flower, uh, I understand, can also be seen throughout Ukraine and it's often on the traditional floral headdresses as well. Canada Post originally issued a stamp with this colorful image already in the past in 2011 and then now reissuing it now with a help for Ukraine title, making the stamp available sooner. So I guess that's also a, a way that they were able to move quickly. Isn't that so, Brian? It is.
4: It is, yeah. They and that was part of our petition. We we recommended they use this previous design, and of course, it's in the sort of accepted colors of the Ukraine as well, yellow and blue. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it, they did a great job. It's fantastic, and I, I just urge people to get to the postal outlets and get the stamps and talk about them. And and maybe another thing that people can do is uh, is fundraise with them. That's certainly what I'm going to do. Right? You can resell the stamps in whatever venue you're using, whether it's your you know, church auction, whether it's a, uh, an organization you belong to, and then give the funds to a uh, Ukraine support organization that you support.
0: Oh, that's so interesting, Brian, as a way to uh, keep the momentum going with the fundraising uh, for this charity. I wonder how popular, just in general, you think collecting stamps is today?
4: it's enjoyed a renaissance during covid Uh, one of the unintended consequences of the unfortunate pandemic was people who had hobbies were stuck at home and were able to double down on them if they were fortunate fortunate enough to have hobbies and stamp collecting is certainly one of those that grew tremendously during covid and of course it's getting a, a flag wave during the ukraine war as well due to the uh, global popularity of the ukraine russian warship go stamp and so uh it's certainly been a shot in the arm for stamp collecting uh, do i wish that we never had a pandemic and do i especially wish that uh we didn't have war absolutely but uh i'm happy to see people uh being able to distract themselves collecting stamps from from their woes and enjoy themselves and uh so that's been good
0: that's great to hear. And in terms of trying to get more of these stamps out there, does it make a difference when one goes to the, the counter at Canada Post and says, hey, I really want to get this Ukraine stamp? Does that in some way trickle uh, to Canada Post itself as feedback that makes them produce more of the stamps, do you think?
4: I think it does. I, I think the important thing is just go buy them. And then once they're sold out, we can work on Canada Post to make more.
0: Okay. And
4: uh, I, I checked on Canada Post's Facebook page this morning uh, and people in the Ukraine want this stamp, which, which is wow. incredible and not surprising. And they're saying thank you for your support.
0: Oh, Brian, how what a we, wonderful how story. Get the stamps? Such a great story. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time this morning.
4: Thank you for your interest and support.
0: Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.